Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday mailbag edition. You know what? There are some of you out there who really can't wait for me to stop saying that. I'm not sure it's ever going to happen. I'm really, really sorry. You know why? Because I'm made to. Andrew makes me. Andrew, of course, is Andrew Page. The founder, managing director, chief cook and bottle washer, because I know you like me saying that, of strawman.com. How are you, buddy? I'm very good, my uh, my good man. And yourself? Excellent. I am exceptionally well. Thank you very much. Uh, this wonderful Sunday morning that is also a Thursday morning. Uh, we are, we Don't shatter the illusion. Sorry. You always shatter the illusion. I know, mate. What's, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm torn between being honest with our audience and trying to mis- maintain the mystery. I figure we screw it up so frequently that we're better off being honest and asking for their, uh, asking for their <laughs> forgiveness and, and forbearance rather than trying to pretend this is all a uh, highly polished and produced episode. What do you reckon? Yeah, I go with that. Yeah, let's go with that. All right, mate, uh, I did say on Friday's episode that I would make you explain to us what on earth this strawman.com thing is all about. <laughs> and I'm dreading the question because I think I know the answer. But let's, let's, let's pursue this one. What exactly is strawman.com? Well, you know, I could trot out the usual, we're just a private online investment club. You wouldn't do but that. But I would say at a higher <laughs> level, you oh, know, here we just go. A, a at a metaphysical level? At a, at a metaphysical level, perhaps, yes. Um, <laughs> we, we are a, a collection of engaged DIY investors that are just looking mm-hmm. to tap into the collective wisdom experience and intelligence of, of a whole bunch of uh, private investors. And the view being that... Uh, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So I'm, I'm able to tap into to some uh, insights, perspectives, uh, valuations, etc., that I might not otherwise uh, get. So it's all about crowdsourcing some good investing content, mm. but doing it in a way in which it's very accountable and measurable. Mm-hmm. How's that? I think that's perfect. I also, though, lost, you lost me halfway through. I started thinking you were pretty much describing the Borg. For those <laughs> Star Trek fans out there. Uh, <laughs> Uh, we, we are the Borg. You will be assimilated. I'm thinking collective, better than the sum of parts. It's hive mind. I'm, I'm going straight to Star Trek. I'm worried about John Luke Picard and Commander Riker who are potentially going in a harm's way by, uh, oh, how's that for some Star Trek references? For those who love Star Trek, you're welcome. For those who've got no idea what I'm talking about, I apologise. And for those Star Wars fans, you're wrong. Star Trek is actually better than Star Wars. Okay. Anyone listening still, you reckon? <laughs> Mate, I, you, I don't think there's too many people who are that who care that much uh, re Star Wars versus Star Trek that that you, you've put too many people offside. I think it's just oh, us. Oh, you'd be surprised how many people care about that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those are fighting words amongst a decent proportion of the. If you if you uh, feel, feel free to for tweet at us uh, hashtag Star Wars hashtag Star Trek. Uh, let us know. With, oh, no, we'll, we'll, well, here you go. Here's my commitment. Until I forget, we will count them up. So end. So so hit us up. I'm at TMF Scott P. Andrew is at Sage underscore Simeon. Hit us up with a hashtag Star Trek or hashtag Star Wars. If Star Wars wins, I will conveniently forget. If Star Trek wins, I will mention it loud and proud <laughs> next next Friday. Next you are drawing Sunday. me into a debate I, I do not care to have, my friend. But so, so let me just reiterate, make sure you at a hashtag <laughs> Scott and not me because uh, I, ju- I just, you know, I don't want to get involved. Andrew is at Sage underscore Simeon, as I said. Um, <laughs> while we're here, actually, mate, let me, let me finish that conversation. So if you are on the socials, we love... Hearing from you, we love getting your questions. We love seeing your comments. Um, if you want to follow us, we'd love to, to follow you and chat with you as well. So if you want to get in touch, the very best way to do it is on the socials. Had some really good conversations this week with a couple of listeners. Um, so thank you for those who, who've corresponded with us with your questions, comments, feedback, suggestions, disagreements in some cases, which is completely cool. We love that. So as I said, Twitter and Insta, I'm at TMF Scott P. 
The Motley Fool on Insta and Twitter is at the Motley Fool AU. Andrew is only on Twitter so far. You can get him at Sage underscore Simeon or at Strawman Invest. And just to round them out, if you're on Facebook, The Motley Fool Australia or Scott Phillips Money and info at fool.com.au if you prefer to correspond with us in what I'm only begrudgingly now calling the old-fashioned way, mate, because I remember when email was new and uh, mail was old-fashioned. Um, those were... those. Were, I, I, I remember working for Woolies many years ago, mate, when they had internal mail, internal email. And it was a thing. I was like, oh, you can, you can talk to people in different stores. That's awesome. And then an email turned I was like, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. And yet here we are some undisclosable un, uh, number of years later and email seems old school. There you go. If you're, on, if you're on the socials or on email, you want to send us a question for our mailbag, which we do love, so please do that because, um, we, frankly, we'd rather talk about things that are interesting to you rather than things that are just interesting to us. We'll, by the way, enjoy doing that, but uh, you may not. And so we're here for, we're here for you. Uh, we like the audience to grow rather than shrink, so do that for us. All right, mate, here's... The first one from mm-hmm. Jesse. G'day, Scott and Ram. It's Jesse from Melbourne here. Appreciate the great work you're both doing to spread your investing wisdom. I've learned a hell of a lot from you two gurus. That's very kind. Let's get stock specific, he says. Now, here we go. A few weeks back, a listener asked a question along the lines of what ASX company most closely resembles Berkshire Hathaway? I will say here quickly, I own shares in Berkshire Hathaway. All right, here we go. Back to Jesse. My ears pricked up after hearing that question because I presumed either one of you would mention Magellan. Like Berkshire's insurance business, Magellan also has a business oozing free cash flow that they're using to redeploy excess capital into investments in other businesses through their Magellan Capital Partners division. In fact, they recently bought a stake in my favorite takeout chain, Guzman E. Gomez. Assuming Magellan can it's very good by the way, I love Guzman. Mm. Assuming Magellan can continue generating modest inflows into their funds, I'm confident their investing prowess will hold them in good stead to continue making prudent investments with their free cash flow to compound shareholders' capital for decades to come. I understand there's a lot of water to go under the bridge before we can call Magellan Australia's Berkshire, but it seems like all the ingredients are there for Magellan to give it a red hot crack. Keen to hear your thoughts, gents. Cheers. Jesse. And you know what I love about Jesse? Mm. He then says, for full disclosure, I own shares in MFG, Magellan Financial Group, and considering adding more on this recent pullback. So, mate, good man for disclosing that ownership. We always love full disclosure. Um, you know, we, we don't doubt our correspondence uh, opinions or, or, or honesty, integrity, nor we hope to you doubt ours, but it's always just simply cleaner and easier when we disclose these things so that you know exactly where we're coming from. And Jesse, we know where you're coming from. You're a true believer. You own the shares. That's great. If you love the business, you might own the shares and hopefully they'll do well for you. What do you reckon, Ram? Can we call it yet Australia's Berkshire Hathaway? Well, I mean, at a le- well, firstly, congratulations. I just had to bring up yep. uh, Magellan and, and uh, in the last 10 years, it's gone from $1.30 to almost 40 bucks a share. <laughs> it's so amazing, isn't it? They're doing something right. Um, oh, they what? You know, and and yeah, so at a, at a level, it they are a, a reasonable comparison because they're both taking capital and they're investing mm-hmm. it on our behalf. Mm-hmm. I guess the reason we probably didn't mention it was more just due to a, the structure. So yeah. distinguishing between a conglomerate uh, as opposed to a fund manager. Yeah. Um, but yeah, ostensibly, ostensibly they're doing the same thing, and, and I think mm-hmm. it's it's not a, it's not an unfair comparison. But that's that's probably where most people would sort of say, oh, well, there's a difference because when you start bringing in fund managers, you've got a whole other bunch of comparisons you should you should equally make as well. So I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. No, I think that's right. I wouldn't be surprised. So I think Jesse's last point is actually the right one, which is it's too early to call it Australia's Berkshire Hathaway, but it might be in time. Mm. I don't know enough about Magellan's plans on this one. Um, Remember, Berkshire's equity portfolio is tiny, 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 but it also invests that money on its 
own behalf. It's not shareholders' capital necessarily going into that, right? So you've kind of got to look at two parts of the business. Um, Magellan, for the longest time, hasn't retained capital to make its own investments. It was purely a fund manager clipping the ticket on the fund's success or otherwise mm-hmm. and paying out dividends and bonuses as a result. So it has been a traditional fund manager for most of that period of time. Uh, to the extent that it starts retaining capital to grow it on its own behalf, then it has, absolutely is becoming more of an investment company in that traditional style, whether that's Berkshire or someone else. Um, plenty of other businesses do it, by the way. Salt Pats, again, is exactly that. They're, they're holding equity stakes in businesses, and both private and, and public, by the way. So maybe fair to say that Magellan might be the next Salt Pats, <laughs> maybe maybe even more than the next Berkshire Hathaway in the sense that what Berkshire's free float is that maybe sets it apart is that insurance money that it gets, uh, which it basically can invest before it pays it back. Magellan doesn't have that sort of business. It invests its... It invests uh, fund investors' money, but that's a direct investment. It doesn't get to hold that and pay some back later. It doesn't kind of, you know, Berkshire takes a buck and has to pay a buck back or 90 cents back in ten, in a year's time and gets to invest that money on the way through. But doesn't have that sort of business model. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it hands off third party, invests its, its fund holders' money directly and charges a fee, which is a bit different. So, yeah, look, I, very possibly. Um, Magellan are super smart guys. I, I kind of like the idea they're trying some some private investing. Whether that works or not, we still don't know, by the way. And most of Berkshire's early businesses were actually still publicly listed. So when Berkshire built a share portfolio, it would hold some shares in Amex and some shares in blue chip stamps and shares in other things. Owning businesses outright was even, you know, even Geico, the insurance business, it didn't own all of for a long period of time until it finally bought the rest. So it, it kind of was a bit of a journey. Um, Magellan's kind of, you know, you can see it's investing prowess in the public markets on behalf of its fund holders but not necessarily, um, not necessarily on its own behalf. So I guess we have to ask that question of, you know, where does the money go and how well do they do? How often do they, are they successful versus not? Um, but I, I like it. If I was a Magellan shareholder, I would, I would like they're trying to do this because they've got some demonstrated prowess in the public markets. It makes sense for them to try it in the private markets. It may not work, by the way, or it might. Uh, and that's probably a, a question that's an open question I'll have to try and resolve. But yeah, mate, just for my, um, for my money, I think it's the right strategy to try. If it fails, that's still the right strategy to try. If it works, maybe it is the next Berkshire Hathaway, but a decent a decent amount of time to go before we get to that point, I think. Either way, it's it seems to be, so far at least, a really well-run business. I really like Hamish yeah. Douglas. Yeah. I mean, Me I too. think, you know, like any fund manager, any stock picker, he's going to have good years and bad years. Mm-hmm. But there's there's enough sort of water under the bridge to sort of say at least, you know, it hasn't been all due to luck. There's, there's something mm-hmm. there. I've heard him speak a number of times. I like his process. I like his philosophy. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to argue too much with this. I, I think it's got – but whether it's a Berkshire Hathaway or not is, is really just sort of – yeah, know, yeah. By yeah. the point, you know, is is it a decent investment? Well, uh, again, I haven't done the deep dive into it, yeah. but I, I, yeah. I think you could do far worse. Yep, I like it, mate. That's a, that's a really good way to put it. Um, and yeah, I, I, I honestly, the other thing, mate, you mentioned from a dollar, whatever it was, to, to 40, it's actually gone there via 73 odd dollars. Um, so it's actually, was it, the, so the highest it got to on my chart here, 73.67. It's now into 40 bucks. Um, so phenomenal success over the over the long term, um, but has come back quite a bit as Jesse says, and um, maybe maybe worth a look. I've certainly I mentioned it on Ausbiz during the week. You and I uh, on the Ausbiz streaming channel sometimes, um, and it came up. It's one of the stocks that the one of the viewers wanted to view on, and it's looking relatively inexpensive, mate, for what it might be able to do if it can keep growing. So we'll see. Yeah, yeah. we'll see. But it's it's a pretty good it's in a pretty good position, I think. Yeah. All right. Um, by the way, this is a really random one. Have you noticed the uh, on, on Google now, if you search for a company, have you noticed the CDP score? No. So this is fa- – I don't want to get – this is a massive tangent, uh, but I pulled up the graph and I, I just saw it again. I thought I should mention it. Companies – so basically uh, Google is providing as part of – when you look up a company's share price, you get the chart. 
you get the market cap PE ratio, dividend yield, 52-week high and low. And they're now putting in the CDP score, CDP. which is a – they call it – this is the description – a measure of the actions that a company takes to address climate change. Oh. So we talked a lot about ethical investing in the past and other things. I just thought it was a really fascinating one because it's kind of – when someone like a Google says, hey, let me show you this as part of your search for shares – it's a reminder that you know this is becoming a, a, a big. We know ethical investing is taking off and ESG investing, but just 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 fascinating. Of all the things they could show, um, they've chosen to show this. Now that might reflect Google's own view, of course. But um, if every every investor who gets to see this every time they look up a company's share price, it makes a difference. So it just thought I'd mention that in passing. Yeah, no, interesting. Well, what, what's this? I'm trying to think of the saying here. What gets measured gets gets done. Gets done. Thank Correct, you, mate. Yes, um, right. and so yeah, that's probably yeah. A, well, it's, it's making it's making it more prominent, right? More people are going to look at it and see that number, and maybe more companies will think about it as a result. So yeah, we'll see yeah, what yeah. Happens. cool. Let's move into the next question, mate. So great question, Jesse. Thank you for kicking us off. One from Lachlan. Hi, Scott and Andrew. Oh dear, I'm going to try and get you drunk. He says, "That's fine, Lachlan. Name okay. the place, and uh, I'll name the liquor, and we can we can uh, happy to have it. If you're buying the drink, no, it's not. It's not that unfortunate, mate. He's going to make me drink my own liquor because he says by asking a few questions about Kogan's recent results. Oh dear. All right. Oh dear. So I, I will disclose again because I do. I own shares in Kogan, and then I'll probably have to mention it two or three times because there's plenty of questions about Kogan. I'm going to ask you when to this one first, Andrew, and we'll, I'll, I'll throw some thoughts okay. at the end. <clears throat> the company recently reported its numbers. And the share price got slammed. In brackets, says, so it should. Kogan reported top-line growth, but its bottom line struggled. I noticed the company reported a lot of adjusted earnings and similar figures, as well as using gross sales and a separate revenue figure. Mm. Generally, at what point do you not invest in a company that adjusts or uses different measures to determine profitability? Mm. I'm aware Kogan had purchased Mighty Ape, so Kogan is just an example relative to the question. Secondly, he says, how do you determine appropriate remuneration for a CEO, mm. especially when considering share or option-based incentives can dilute shareholders' earnings? Um, I love this question, mate. It's a really, really good one. A couple of two questions, really. Adjusted, I, I've changed my view over time on adjusted earnings, but let me start with you. Mm. At what point do you not invest, asks Lachlan, in a company that adjusts or uses different measures to determine profitability? Wow, what a great question. So, yeah, this is very common. Um, mm. Non-standard measures that are presented because the company, rightly or wrongly, believes mm. it gives a, a, a fairer, more accurate interpretation on the business. Yep. And that sounds dodgy when you say it. It sounds really <laughs> wrong. But I think in a yep. lot of cases, it's perfectly reasonable. There are some mm. what they call significant items, you know, that, that just – uh, that will, you know, as the name suggests, they are significant. Yes, they're very real. They're very, um, you know, they, they happened for for better or worse. But they probably don't represent the true, on average, operating <laughs> performance economics mm. of the business. Mm. Mm. And so it's right to exclude. In fact, as an investor, when you're looking at a company, you should be trying to do that yourself, trying to cut through all of the noise to sort of see see the see an underlining truth. There, mm. there might be a um, look. There, there are a lot of adjustments. Um, made with takeovers, for example. So a company mm. takes over another one halfway throughout the year and that obviously distorts things because it's a different business that's reporting uh, at, at the end of that period. And so a company will often put in pro forma results. Well, what do these results look like if we'd own the business for the full year? And they can do that because they know how the two businesses performed individually over that time. So there are, there are very reasonable um, reasons as to why you would do that. Yeah. The, the tricky thing is that, that companies are always going to try and <laughs> use the metric that gives the most um, mm -hmm. puts the most favourable light on them. So they're not wrong to 
do it necessarily, but it is up to us as investors to feel as though they're doing it appropriately. Are there some? There, there are some companies who um, really their whole core growth strategy is built around acquisitions, and yet every time they report, they say, "Oh, don't worry about all these acquisition costs and all this." Like, well, it's kind of part of yeah. your business model. Yeah. Is that reasonable to exclude? There are some companies that will that will adjust out sort of certain amortization charges, say of customer lists and stuff. And actually, that's maybe not too unreasonable because there's no cash costs in that. And whatever assumptions the accountants first came up with when these things are put on the books may have been overly conservative. So there 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 are there are situations, but yeah, you need to cast a healthily skeptical eye on them. <laughs> and then, so to the to the to the question. Do you invest or do you not invest? Well, I think if you get to a stage where you reach the conclusion that management is very much trying to look through rose-colored glasses and very much trying to focus you on a very encouraging, positive narrative that isn't objectively a fair representation on the underlying performance of the business, mm. that's when you might sort of down downmark some some of your faith in management because it, it is. Full credit to them for trying to give a more accurate picture, but if if, if yeah. the picture they're giving isn't more accurate, is less accurate. In fact, <laughs> that's when you need to score them differently. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right, mate. I'm I'm going to add just a little bit to it, but you've you've done it beautifully. Um, adjusted numbers. So, as investors, if you saw a if you're going to buy a news agent and you look at the books and the roof caved in last year and the news agent spent fifty grand fixing the roof, right? And then you said, how much do I want to pay for this business? You could say, well, last year I only made 50 grand in profit, but the year before I made 100 grand. Let's make keep my numbers easy. Uh, okay, so profits halved and profits are down a lot. Um, and so, look, I, I only think it's worth X because, you know, it only made 50 grand last year. It'd be very reasonable for you to look at that and go, well, yeah, but that's not really the underlying earnings of the business. Maybe I should allow for the fact that I'm going to have to repair the roof every five or six years. So I should have put some of that into the numbers in my mm-hmm. thinking. But if, if, if it doesn't have to repair the roof this year, it's going to make 100 grand, mm. which is the more appropriate profit number to look for? Yep. And you're going to say, you're going to say, well, of course I would adjust it for that. Mm. Um, conversely, if you're selling, you do the same thing. It's, it, I, so so I th- I'm agreeing with you, Matt. I used to be, I, used to, I, was, I was brought up uh, as an investor early on with a lot of influence from a lot of value investors who are pretty cut and dried, frankly, pretty cynical people mm. who were like, you know, no, nah, nah, it's all rubbish, it's all rubbish, all rubbish. Yeah. I, so I think, I think, you know, and, and frankly, as we've talked about, Matt, even through COVID, right? I, I, the phrase I use all the time is underlying earnings power. That is, what is a business likely to earn on a, on a normal basis through the rest of its life or at least the next few years? It doesn't matter what it did last year, whether it's higher or lower, it's the underlying earnings power that matters. Now, I will say, um, so Sol Pats, for example, a company I own shares of, maybe have another drink for that one, um, always does normalised and it does it both directions, right? They're super, super honest. They're like, you know what? The reported earnings were X, but we think you should look at operating earnings because they're more re- more relevant and more appropriate for the capacity of the business. Here's what you should look at. Yeah. And sometimes that's higher and sometimes it's lower, but they're at least consistent. Warren Buffett says every quarter, mm. here's our results, but don't look at them because they're all screwy because of this this and that and the other. Mark to market here's accounting and exactly. Others, yep. Here's what's more important. So the, I think the answer, honestly, to, to the question from me is it depends whether you trust management or how much you trust management. Are they trying to obfuscate or are they trying to inform? Mm. And Lachlan, for me, that's the difference, right? So, um, and, and I make my own adjustments, as does Andrew. You know, we, we are looking for that specifically. I've said before when I recommended M2 many years ago, M2 Telecommunications, for those who remember the company, I made some adjustments because the accounting treatment was unnecessarily harsh. Mm. It was appropriate and it was right, mm. but it made profit look lower than it was. Mm. And when you look through that and go, well, hang on, that's just a paper transaction. The real earnings power of this business is much higher. It was, it was worth buying the shares. So, you know, there are, investors should be looking critically at the numbers. The accountants have to do what the accountants have to do. Management should, if they're legitimately genuine, 
tell you both directions when the numbers should be changed. But as Andrew says, most don't. Most are happy to kind of tell you the good news when it's good and ignore the bad news when it's bad. Yep. Uh, and, and if they're not adjusting regularly in the same way, as I said, Sofats are a great example of a company that does it, then you want to be a little bit careful. That's, that was the point I was going to make. Consistency is the thing to look for here. Yeah, companies yeah. that move the goalposts, that, that is a big red flag. But a company that sort of says, hey, here's a better way of looking at our earnings and is mm-hmm. consistent on that, whether, whether it gives a better or worse picture, that is, that's actually a great sign, I, I think. Mm. Um, so again, Buffett's got some things on this. I, they say EBITDA is BS earnings, you know, the earnings before interest tax, depreciation and amortization. So they can be pretty harsh. But another saying he's got is something along the lines <laughs> of when, when thinking of underlying mm-hmm. earnings, it's the second part of the word that you need to, to yeah. focus on there, i.e. the yeah. lying um, uh, uh, part of it. But, but then Buffett does, does talk to the value of doing it. He has this concept called owner earnings, which isn't mm-hmm. Correct. Uh, nice, an yeah. accounting uh, term, but it's right, one that right, he right. basically says, what, what yeah, again, if this was just my business that I owned outright, regardless of what I actually earned this year, because maybe I had some extra expenses or maybe I didn't have to pay some expenses that would normally be reasonably expected, just to right. a, a, adjust through all of that. I think he's, Google it, you'll find the exact definition, but it's, it's basically earnings where you adjust for some essential uh, capital expenditure requirements and the rest of it. In other words, if I'm looking at this thing as a cash generating sort of money box thing, what is what is what is the, mm-hmm. the true earnings, cash earnings that I'm actually being able to pull out of this, adjusting for some of the the, the more variable items that will be different year to year, but 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 don't don't speak to the underlying economics. Yeah, that's, I think that's exactly the way to do it. But let me go to the second question that Lachlan asks. What's an appropriate level of remuneration? How do you determine oh, that's how such, much they should be paid? Such a good question. Now, on mm-hmm. one hand, um, the unfortunate reality is is that it is a, a, a competitive marketplace and if you want good talent, you, you do have to pay up for that. Mm-hmm. So I'm as a shareholder, I don't actually mind uh, senior management of, of my companies being paid ridiculously well, provided that they're worth it. I've learned this the hard way. Anyone who's run a business knows this, right? That that mm-hmm. you know, you can look at two different employees, they're both X dollars an hour, but one is going to be far, far more productive. And in, in a lot of I found this with developers, the more expensive developer is the far cheaper developer. Because <laughs> yeah. although you pay them yeah. more per hour, yeah. they just yeah. get it done yeah. much quicker and they get it done right the first time <laughs> and, and all of yeah. this kind of stuff. So yeah. I think you need to look at management the same way. So when you're getting management that's paid above perhaps market rates when you look at their peers mm-hmm. and they've just really failed to deliver, not because of mm. share price. Management have no control over share price, but if the business is mm. just not executing well, that's that sticks in my crawl far more than just looking at the number and saying, oh, that's that's high or that's like <laughs> It depends. Yeah. Um, same with same with uh, options and all these other kinds of things. I'm, I actually really like long-term mm. uh, incentive plans that include a lot mm. of those things, as long as they're appropriately measured. And I'm more than happy the CEO to absolutely clean up if yeah. they've created a huge amount of value for everyone else along the way. I'd far rather that than, than a CEO who might only be paid 50 grand a year but runs the business into the ground. So, again, <laughs> yeah, right. context matters yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the answer is it depends. it depends. But, yes, absolutely. As a general statement, can you look around corporate Australia, corporate America, and cor- well, especially corporate America, and say, are these levels reasonable? Are they obscene? Are mm. they really delivering that much value? And I think, mm. of course, there's a lot of examples where that is not the case. <laughs> But to be fair, there are some examples where you could probably look at, you know, someone like Jeff Bezos and say, well, he, he probably could have paid himself twice as much as he did and, and still oh, yeah. still be worth it, you know. So yep. I don't know. What do you think? 
Um, I agree with that entirely, mate. I think uh, one thing. One thing I would say, by the way, and I think uh, you may disagree, or you may agree, or may just be clarifying your thought. But I like Buffett's approach. Speaking of Buffett, I like Buffett's approach to remuneration, where he pays people for the actions they took and the results they created, mm. rather than the results of the business. Mm. Yep. And I think he uses the example. I'm pretty sure this is a Buffett example of the oil oil CEO, mm. whose company makes a fortune one year because the oil price went up. Yeah. Now, if you're saying, I'm going to pay the CEO if his earnings per share rise, well, tick. I'm going to pay the CEO if um, share price goes up, tick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What is this? I, mean, I, could have, I could have been the CEO of that oil company that year, right? And I could have, I could have done nothing right and the company's profits still would have gone up because the oil price went up. Yep. And so paying people just because of the results alone, I think, is silly. And it's some people say, well, this is the lion's shareholders. It, kind of, it does or it doesn't. You know, if you're going to do well or if you're going to do badly, if that oil company CEO brings costs down by 25%, reduces the number of injuries and lost time uh, to injuries, um, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and the oil price falls 20% and mm. so therefore the company makes less money, mm. have they done a good job or a bad job? Of course they've done a great job. Mm. And so I think it's important to tie remuneration to their outcomes rather than just the share price of the profit, particularly when you've got headwinds or tailwinds. Simply, you know, Alan Joyce, if he can keep the airline alive, he's worth $10 million, mm. right? Not, not because not because the share price went up, but because he's done something that most people can't do. Mm. And he made his management team, and that's the other thing, by the way, is CEOs are never worth what they're paid alone because they're not the only ones making decisions uh, or, or working hard. Mm. So it's hard. But as you say, mate, it's – so the outcomes absolutely pay on the outcomes. The reality too, honestly, Lachlan, is the market decides remuneration rather than us, right? So – Founders are different. So Rosalind Kogan is different, um, a different example, uh, as are every other founder, including Bezos, because what's Amazon without Bezos? What's what's Kogan without Rosalind Kogan? Very different businesses. What is, um, I don't know, pick it up, pick it up, you know, Phillips Incorporated without Jenny Smith? Eh, it's probably still Phillips Incorporated. Mm. And so, you know, realistically, you know, <laughs> it's a different, it's a difficult thing to try and decide. Mm. In this case, though, the, the reality is if Phillips Incorporated is run by Jenny Smith and Jenny Smith loses the job, People are going to apply from other companies to come and join the business if I'm paying about the market rate. Mm. So the hardest part is the market rate's the market rate is the market rate. You can say, I think, see, I think the, the job of CEO is only worth $100,000 in my company. Mm. But all you're going to get is work experience, kids, and you know the, the, the sales rep who's been in the job for two years apply because everyone else say, well, hang on, go and get 200 grand over there or a million or two million or five million. I so the other hard part for this Lachlan is – if I could, if I could start again, would I? Yes. <laughs> if I could reset all CEO compensation, would I? Yes. But the market is the market is the market to some degree, and that's the reality. I do think Hogan is probably not best practice in terms of needing to or choosing to um, give options for retention for people who are already very wealthy because of the business and earning a lot. On the flip side. Do you want Rosalind Kogan walking out the door? You really, really don't. <laughs> you know, like if he says, "Look, I've loved this business, I've grown it, that's fantastic," but I'm just getting to your feet. I want to go and do something else for a bit, um, which would be very reasonable for him to think. Do you want to make sure he's going to hang around? Yeah, you really, you really, really do. So um, it's a hard one, right? Um, Lynn Ainsworth famously left Aristocrat and started Ainsworth Gaming. Uh, now that was a whole different story with some family fallouts, apparently, and stuff like that. But you know, would you have rather him not leave the business and start a competitor? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so, so it it is really hard. I. The other thing I would last thing I say, Lockins, I don't actually worry about it all that much. It's kind of one of the things that very, very rarely moves the dial. Um, if the company's of a decent size, unless remuneration is stupidly large, if the Macquarie Bank CEO gets paid two times, five times, or ten times her current salary, it's not going to change shareholder returns. Would I do I have a view on what she should be paid? Sure, but am I wasting time worrying about it? Kind of, yeah. Someone's got to do it at a policy level. I have a view. As a shareholder, though, I don't get too worked up about it. 
Just on that idea of what gets measured gets done. Um, yeah. And just and, and Charlie Munger talks about this all the time. Incentives are just everything, mm-hmm. you know. So I I I don't get too hung up on the gross dollar value of of the salary or anything like that. But mm-hmm. I do actually every time I invest in a company, look at the remuneration report because I want to see where the incentives are because mm-hmm. I mean, CEOs are just humans yeah, as well. If I'm going to do X and get a squillion dollars and I do Y and get nothing, mm. Y might be the better long-term structural kind of move, uh, strategic move rather. Um, mm. But if, if that doesn't benefit me, well, I'm going to do X. So a good mm. example here is, is you know, the, some CEOs get incentivized to grow revenue, for example. And you think, well, that's reasonable. If you grow revenue, I'd be really happy with that. But what do you do? You go out and you make a squillion acquisitions. You know, your revenue is going to go up through the roof. You're going to get all your bonuses, but maybe they're really bad acquisitions. Yeah. Um, maybe the profitability of the business has gone down as a result. Maybe you've, you've, mm. you've you know, you've, you've hobbled the business long term in terms of a whole bunch of different different things. So exactly. look yep. look at what they're. You're right to sort of say there are some things like you know with oil price fluctuation, that earnings and things that mm. you think should line up. So it's it's it, mm. there's no mm. perfect system out there, but there is definitely a spectrum, and there's definitely some things that are on the far better end of the spectrum. So generally I'm, I'm looking for mm. incentives that vest over a multiple period of years that are done on, I like earnings per share as a measure because that's the currency mm-hmm. we work in, the, the yes, ca- yes. factors in dilution and that kind of stuff. Yep. Um, and yeah, just th- 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 there's always going to be exceptions where it's not perfect, but I think yep. that is far better than a near-term gross EBITDA yeah. target or something like that, which I can <laughs> achieve <laughs> in a way that might not be yeah. useful to the long term. I actually still have issues with EPS, mate, earnings per share, because you and I know you can go and borrow a billion dollars, buy a business, double your earnings per share, yep. uh, and the business might be precariously loaded with debt, and you, you hit your EPS target because your earnings per share. That's true, too. new shares, yes. and you bought some earnings with debt. Um, I don't think you're wrong necessarily. I, I think I, I haven't really ever kind of finalised my view on this, because I'm never going to be in the position of being on a remuneration committee, I don't think, although you never know. Mm-hmm. Um I I think I would I think I would use some sort of internal return on investment metric, mm. uh, which mm. which factors in both debt and equity, mm. um, because you want a business person to be creating value, incremental incremental return per dollar invested. Mm. I think that's how I would view that decision. So if the dollar invested is debt, well, I still want to see value creation on top of that debt you've yep. taken out. Yep. If you're issuing shares, I want to see value creation on top of that, um, and maybe I want to see that increase or even stabilize over time, so that retained earnings are used well. I, I don't really have a final version on that, but I EPS I think can be also gamed. Reasonably easily. It and can. Say, it can. Know, There's no reasonable. perfect system. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Correct. But there, are, right. but, but there is a spectrum. <laughs> there is a spectrum. Well, that, and that's, you know, it depends, right? And we, we say it so regularly and you and I could make a lot more money, mate, if we had really firm, absolute, you know, ranty views. That's how that's how shock jocks make their money, right? If we said, no, actually, it's got to be this. And we're like, oh, okay, cool. We'll take that then. Mm-hmm. So it depends. It could be this, could be that. And people are like, well, oh, I, I just want a single answer. Uh, and single answer is hard to give, right? That's why we don't do it. But it's, uh, it's, it's tough. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Question from Damien. Damien says, good afternoon once again to our esteemed and foolish purveyors of investing insight. That's not bad, is it? I might, I might put that on my business card. Esteemed and foolish purveyor of investing insight. I, said, um, I have well and truly pivoted, he says, from unsuccessfully doing shorter term trades early last year to buying and just holding what I believe to be good companies and the odd speculative company, he says, that I believe in. Oh. I want to hold almost coffee can-like. But as you both spoke about in a recent mailbag, a couple of sales were some of your best decisions as they avoided a further wipeout of capital. I'm now trying to work out when and how you make that decision. So I minimise catastrophes, but avoid just selling out because of a short or longer dip. I must admit, I'm a bit of a sucker for the narrative 
rather than being a spreadsheet and technicals type. So is it just if I can see whether the narrative has definitely changed, like a company like Newix? Oh, Newix, great example. Or mm. is there something uh, or a measure I should be looking at? In my case, I'm currently reviewing my holding in pain check, which is significantly down. It is a small cap med tech, medical technology company, that seems to be on the right track but has stalled with COVID. How should I look at something like this to see whether I hold, sell or even buy in both my real and straw man portfolios? Mm-hmm. Thank you to The Main Fool, capital T, capital M, capital F, and Straw Former Fool Simeon. There we go. It is a great podcast and I appreciate you giving your insights to us freely in these podcasts. That's Damien. Thank you, Damien. It's very kind words, mate. appreciate it. Um, I'm going to re- get my um, business card redone. <laughs> Do you have a business card, by the way? No. Nah. I, every, I, I time have, I've had a, every time I've been issued business cards in the past, I get this box and yeah, and then I throw it away. Like, I haven't given away yep. three, you know? Yep, yep, yep. And usually for the I'm, kids uh, to make something with, you know? It's just, I just don't yeah. use them. I'm in, I'm in my 10th uh, my year and I still had my very, very first business cards that were done for me in 2012. And uh, yeah, I have, I've not used them all. Uh, my role has changed about six times in the meantime. I just never bothered getting more printed. Can I just say on this is a completely yes. uh, a proposal yeah. of nothing. Um, if anyone's not seen the movie American Psycho, watch it because it's great. But the, um, there's a business <laughs> card scene in that where they're, oh, they're right, all okay. comparing business. Like Google, go, YouTube it. It's, it is classic. I've never watched American Psycho. There you go. Yeah, yeah, very good. All right, can we answer his question though? Yes. Um, how do you think about when to sell? So he basically, you know, he talks about uh, I'm a, a bit of a sucker for the narrative rather than being spiritual signals type. So is it just if I can see whether the narrative has definitely changed or is it something or a measure I should be looking at? Um, well, it depends whose narrative you're talking about, um, <laughs> I, I suppose here. So so if, if, if something is, is falling, um, well, the narrative on mass for the wider market is, is obviously changed, but has yours changed? I mean, right, the, the right. reasons that you bought the business, have they changed or proven to be untrue? Um, in that instance, then yeah, get out and forget about whether you're up or down, whatever. I bought a company because I believe that X, Y, and Z was going to happen, whatever that happens to be. <laughs> Once that's demonstrably false, or at least there's enough evidence to suggest that it's very shaky, I think, again, regardless of what the price is doing, you just get out because you can dust yourself off, reevaluate, and come back if you need to. Um, on the other hand, if it's got if it if it's got really nothing to do with why you invested yeah, in the business. Um, then yeah, then then absolutely ignore it. So you you might have bought, I don't know. I'll go I'll go for a different type of example. You might have bought a lithium miner because mm, you think electric mm. vehicles are going to be huge, yep. and there's just going to be a massive demand for that. And you buy a lithium company, and three months later, it's down thirty percent because the the price of lithium's fallen a little bit. Or something. Mm, now, mm, was that mm. ever did, did when you made that initial investment? Did you ever think that the price of lithium was never going to mm, to go mm. down? Was it was it ever based on a near term view on that commodity price, or was it more as it as I outlined more on on a, on a longer term kind of picture? Well, in that case, nothing's really changed. You know, as we, we joke about Bitcoin all the time and, ah, it's down. It's like, well, I just, I shrug my, or it's up. I shrug my shoulders again. I mean, nothing has changed there. The price has changed a huge amount. But then, but, and, the, and, and no doubt the, the market narrative in what most people are talking about has changed. But my reasons for change, for investing haven't changed. So I think that's, that's, that is the, 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 the big skill here is to, is to be an independent enough thinker where you can have your own and hopefully a fairly objective opinion on this that then you can contrast with the, with the market and just be honest with yourself because you are the, absolutely you are the easiest person to fool and the endowment effect and a whole other bunch of behavioral biases will do everything uh, they can to preserve your ego and, and to preserve yeah. the, 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 the illusion that you were right. But as long as, as long as you are honest with yourself, 
Uh, and the, and I, I, I think that's the best bet. And this is, as I always say, this is the value of writing it down because yep. you, you have a touchstone that you can come back to to address that very question. Do I sell or do I not? Well, has anything changed? And maybe it has, in which case do it. Maybe it hasn't, in which case maybe buy some more. I like that, mate. I love that a lot. The, the other thing I mean, I add um, to to your or to the Rams answer, Damien, is just that um, by all means be narrative driven or focused. But I would ask you to just make sure you remember that the narrative needs to include the profitability question oh, yes. of the company, yes. right? So, good point. Um, more lithium being mined, or more people on flights. I've used the airlines example so many times. I've really got to come up with a better one, but it's a really good one. Mm-hmm. Um, if my narrative is in 1972, I think over the next 50 years, 100 times, 1,000 times, 10,000 times more people will travel. Therefore, there'll be more. Um, so, therefore, I should buy airlines. That narrative is fine. It just didn't allow for the fact that it was done unprofitably for the most of that last 50 years. Mm. Lithium may or may not be that story, by the way. I have a suspicion it might be the same story mm. where lots of lithium is mined, but supply and demand make, mean that price doesn't move much and there's not as much money to be made as many people think is my, my gut feel, but mm. I could be wrong. Mm. So, yeah, have your narrative by all means. Just be careful with that narrative that it includes the – That's a really it's a kind of a solid narrative, right? Not just a theme. Not, I, just, I really just like the thematic stuff, right? Because it's kind of like, you know, oh, more, more electro- EVs means more lithium, therefore I should buy lithium miners. Mm. Maybe, but you, you mentioned Howard Marks and first-order thinking, second-order thinking. The second-order thinking there is, okay, well, who's going to mine it? I wrote an article about oil. It's, I can't remember what the article's called now. Uh, if you just search Scott Phillips oil lithium, you'll find it. The oil price, I think I've said this before on the podcast, something like doubled after inflation over the last century. Mm. And the, the amount of oil consumed went up a squillion percent. Mm. Uh, and again, if you've if you got the narrative right of, look at all these cars, more people are going to drive by, you know, it's all combustion engine cars, therefore I'm going to buy oil, not always the best option. So, yes. yeah, be, be, by all means use the narrative. Look, the other, thing, the other thing, Damien, is maybe, you know, don't don't rush to sell either way. Um, if it's down, it's probably a lower, a small part of your portfolio now anyway. If it's up, it's probably a larger part of your portfolio. Maybe, maybe think about the weightings and, and make those decisions too, right? Because... If it's fallen, I don't know, 50, 60, 70%, yeah, it's, you know, it, it hurts. But it's so small now, the question really is, well, do you let it kind of see if it plays out or do you do you sell and put it in something else? Mm. If it's a decent amount of money and you've got a better idea, then do it because that's a better idea. Um, but, yeah, no, there's no hurry to rush to sell, I don't think. Well, just just to go with the example that yeah. um, Damien gave with, with Newix, I don't know if you've yes, been following yes. the story, but for those that don't know, they, these guys make, they have some uh, software that sort of forensically mm. investigates big data sets. Mm. Um and they launched last year. They IPO'd last year at five dollars. Mm. They went up to eleven dollars. They had this really wonderful history of growth. All these really lovely metrics: higher retention, lots of recurring <laughs> revenue, rah rah rah. Mm. And what happened? And 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 so it was a good narrative, right? And and it was probably even a narrative that could be based on on an expectation of fundamentals. Right. So it's a really good example. And then and then what happened? Well. CEO got the boot. He's under investigation. The AFP has raided the offices. There's uh, um, this was a growth company that actually didn't grow last year. In fact, over the last couple of years, it sort of averaged about five six percent growth. And this, this is the company that was trading on something like twelve times sales or something at one point in <laughs> yeah, time. Right. So, so yeah. it, it's a great not to pick on Newix, but just to get to the specific yep. here, yep. Yep. I yep. would say that. Chances are the narrative has changed for investors. In fact, the market yep. has probably been. An, absolutely correct in, in, in sending it down. 
Um, now that doesn't mean necessarily that you sell because you you, you can reformulate um, the the investment thesis again, trying trying not to anchor on what has happened and the fact that you own it and just maybe now at five or whatever. Well, no, actually, no, it's two bucks something. You know, maybe maybe mm-hmm. now it does make sense. Mm-hmm. But I think at this point in time, you could say definitively the initial thesis was busted. Um, right. Probably That's a good right. reason to sell, <laughs> um, <laughs> unless you can objectively come up with a, a with a good a revised investment case at the current price. There you go. Uh, Let's yeah. leave it there. Yep. Which one, next one from Matt, mate. Hi, Scott and Ram. Really enjoy listening to the podcast and banter. The podcasts are a highlight of my week. As I've always said, if that's a highlight of your week, you guys have serious issues, but thank you. Uh, and I always look forward to listening to them. I have a question for the mailbag, please. I found myself in a very fortunate and grateful position where I've had a life-changing return on the share market. That's hey, pretty cool. Well done. I'm now in a position to retire years ahead of what I thought was possible, even better. What passive income opportunities, he asks, or structures are there where one can deposit a sum of money and get a regular return every month or every three months or every six months that can be used to live off without having to touch the principal? It would be an added bonus if the principal appreciated slightly as well. Something similar, he says, to the Motley Fool's everlasting income. I was going to mention that. Thank you, Matt. Uh, but what other passive income structures are there? I'd appreciate any thoughts on how one could do this. Mm. Thank you both for an awesome podcast once again, and best of luck, full on Matt. What do you reckon, Ram? Uh, well, there's a bunch of different products and stuff that you you can you can go with there. Um, mm-hmm. What are the ones that challenges sold? Life annuities. Annuities, yeah. 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 So that, that's a nice option. Um, the trouble is, as with everything in economics and investing, there's always a trade-off to be had. So for for getting something that is very reliable and very regular, you're just going to get a lower rate of return. Um, mm, that's mm. just it's just a law of economic. There's a compromise to be made there. Mm. I would say that for me personally, and we can't give investment advice. I think just really good quality dividend paying shares are absolutely the best way. Even right. though you might only you might only get paid every six months as opposed to every quarter. Even though the dividend mm-hmm. might be cut by thirty uh, percent in in any year. Even though the principal mm-hmm. is going to swing around, but but again, history will demonstrate that you know again panning out a little bit. And even if you are retired, and you're looking at sort of trying to. Um, uh, preserve your, your your capital into retirement. I think it actually just gives a you get on average much better yields, especially with franking credits thrown in, and even accounting for the very. I think it's it, it the the variability is worth that given how significant. Like I can I can find right now on the ASX some very decent companies that with franking credits and the rest are probably give me something like a four or five percent return. Even though the share price is going to move around, even though next, you know, some a COVID situation might mean that one one year every now and again the dividend gets cut a little bit, I'd still take that any day of the week over something that's going to give me one and a half, two percent, yeah. but yeah. like clockwork and with absolute yep. and uh, with with no no risk of it of it being cut. Is that mm. is that? I mean, look, that's a it's a personal choice, but I I would sort of say that that's a that is a price worth paying, and it's mm. something that I would I would consider rather than going for these other products that look. More desirable. Just remember, there's there's going to be a cost to that to that totally. uh, certainty. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, the challenge I have with the answer is that um, Matt specifically saying he doesn't want that. Yes, <laughs> so like, yeah. it's it's a it's a really challenging one. Right? But I, but oh, I, well, I'm just questioning that. Like I, I get no, the I agree, desire yeah. to to look for yeah, something alternative, yeah. but don't you know maybe yep. maybe what the alternative that is in front of you is the better one. 
Yes. That, so that, that was what I was going to say is uh, you're answering the question that Matt didn't ask, which is actually the more important answer, which is, Matt, if you're going to, we have some thoughts and Rand's already given you a couple with annuities and other things, but we're being very clear. I, I completely agree with you, Matt. I've, I've spoken about annuities before. Um, in fact, we recommended Challenger for a while at Motley Fool Share Advisor. And at the time I specifically said, invest in the company, don't buy the annuities. <laughs> you know, yeah, because yeah. for exactly that reason, you are... So what, what's Challenger doing? Challenger is saying, give me your money, I'll give you something back and I'll take a profit which is completely, they're completely entitled to. Mm. But the profit they're taking is money that would otherwise be in your pocket mm. that they're happily take off the table. Now, yes, they do it in exchange for being passive. Yes, they do it in exchange for being more regular in the income because they're going to absorb the volatility. So you're paying them to absorb some volatility on your behalf and managing it all for you. And if you want to do that, that's completely fine. And as I said before, why I came around to annuities a little bit was that for many people, it's better than investing in the stock market. The market crashes 40%. They sell and go, I knew I should have done it anyway. And then they buy an annuity mm. at <laughs> exactly the wrong time, yeah. right? So yeah. some people shouldn't manage their own money. Um, what I, say, I don't mean that in a condescending way, but just they're not cut out for it. They're better to have someone else do it for them because even though they're going to make less than they could, they'll probably make more than they would <laughs> because of the, the way they might mismanage yeah. um, the, the, the money. So there's that. Matt, uh, look... <laughs> I, I will say you said something similar to everlasting income. I'm going to give I'm going to give that a red hot plug, um, and I do that for two reasons. One is well, I work for the company, so maybe you might assume it. It's actually not for that reason. Um, we invented it because it's exactly the approach I'm taking for my mother-in-law. So it's kind of you know it wasn't just a service we come up with and then you know kind of tried to sell to people it was a good idea. It literally is how I set up her portfolio so that she would have regular income. With as Ram says that volatility and the way we manage it is by using a cash. Um, buffer, if you like, a cash pile, and that draw gets drawn down between dividend seasons, gets topped up in dividend seasons. And occasionally when dividends are lower like they were last year, we dip a little further into the capital, but don't sell any shares. When dividends are higher, it just pumps up that cash and she still takes the same amount out. So this is exactly the, the, the passive idea. Matt, you may not want to do it for whatever reason. Maybe you don't want to trend buy at all. You never want to have to own individual shares. That's completely cool. Um, but as I said, I, you know, I am a... I'm, I'm an abashed fan, unabashed fan of Everlasting. I, I literally invented the service. I don't say that to be big note myself. I'm just telling you why I like it. Um, it's different from anything we've ever done before at the Motley Fool. We've never had a service that didn't have a market beating mandate. We've never run a portfolio with a cash balance that we've just cho chosen to top up and draw down. It was specifically done because I went, well, how done for mother-in-law? This might work for other members too. Mm. Uh, if you're not going to do that, uh, 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 you can invest in some managed funds that do something similar. A lot of them are massively into banks, which I think is a yep. is too dangerous. A lot of them do stupid options trading strategies, which I think yep. is also stupid. Um, they would say differently, and that's why I'm not mentioning them by name, so I can't get sued. Um, you know, uh, you, you'll probably be fine with them, quite honestly. I think it's silly, but you could probably do it and probably be fine. Mm. Um, so yeah, th those are options. Give if if you're desperate to be passive, I think I'd probably go the annuity route, Ram, just because I you know what you're going to get. Mm. Um, they won't give you any. They won't give you any income growth, generally speaking, unless it's a stepped annuity. Um, and if they do, you're going to pay for that. Again, there's no free lunch, right? So mm. whatever you're whatever you're giving up, someone else is picking up. So just be just be a little bit careful of that for me, just to to make sure things aren't going to come and bite you. Any more on that, mate? Uh, just one thing. There was a chart. Yeah. I should just do it because like it's easy enough to make. Um, <laughs> but I saw it years ago, and it it had a, a line chart for what the ASX had done over a thirty year right. period. You know, we generally it had gone up, as we all know, but you know, a roller coaster ride as it usually is. Yes, yes. But. On on the uh, on the other vertical axis was plotted dividends, so the average sort of dividends from the ASX, and mm. um, 
as a bar chart, and and it, it's basically a okay. staircase. <laughs> even right, when you look, right. even when you look at the GFC, even when yeah, you look at yeah. uh, uh, the tech record, or these big yep. sort of market dislocations, where absolutely yep. the bar chart went down a little bit that year, but mm. nothing of the magnitude of what the market went down, and it recovered really quickly. So it's yeah. actually when you when you look at the income again, I'm talking about the market on average, but and and looking over a long time frame on an annual mm. basis. Mm. It's actually not that vo- the the income side of things is hardly volatile at all. A yeah, little, yeah, a little totally, bit, totally. but it's yep. but it's 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 wonderful. I mentioned Peter Thornhill um, before. Yes. He's got this great book. It's just a really great primer, introductory, very low level kind mm. of book. It's mm. called Motivated Money, and he just talks mm. about that kind of stuff. Investing in good quality industrial type companies that just pay a dividend year in, year out. And he has this chart. That's in fact, in fact, where I saw the chart. He, he just updates his chart all the time. And it's just this this beautiful staircase of ostensibly annuity-style income, <laughs> even though the principal and the, and the capital value is sort of moving all around the place uh, in the background. But but again, generally, over time, moving up. So it's, just like, it's, it's a win-win. And if the price I have to pay for that is a little bit of short-term variability, happy yeah. to pay it. Don't, don't, yeah, don't, don't, don't look, don't look past the, the, the mm, best mm. option if it's if it's right in front of you. And look, everlasting income will cost you money, Matt. So, you know, yes, I am selling one of our products. And if you want to do it yourself, do it yourself. The, the benefit of something like us is, A, you don't give your money to somebody else. Um, so you're not paying, you're paying a fee to us every year for, for the service, but you're not paying anyone a commission and you're not giving them the money and hoping you get it back. Um, we, we tell you what shares to buy, but thereafter, you just let the dividends come in. We change the portfolio maybe once every six to nine months on average. So it's really, really you know, infrequent. Uh, and uh, look, you know, that's, it, it, is, it is the service I designed for my mother-in-law. So I'm, I'm massively, massively biased, but, but it's, it's, it's the best thing I could come up with. Mm. Um, so for what it's worth, it, you know, if you don't do it, that's fine. Do something else. Annuities are fine. Um, some of those managed funds are probably fine. I, I worry about their um, inclusion in terms of the portfolio, but if you just want to be passive because you want to be passive, it's like, guys, I hear you, but I want to be passive, then probably a challenger annuity is probably yeah. the best thing to go for. Just know that you're giving up a decent proportion of your return. It's not the majority, but it's not a small minority either. It's a mm. decent chunk. Mm. Um, for Well, challenger, challenger aren't doing it to be charitable. Totally, and I don't blame them for it, right? No. So for some people, Matt, if you're like, you know what, I need to be passive because I'll freak out if things go badly, then you know what, you know yourself better than I do. If that's right for you, and again, we can't tell you what you should do, but you know, if, if there are better options for you or for others listening who are like, you know what, it's not for me, Here's, I need to do this because of this reason, then maybe go with something like that. Mm. All right, um, let's get a question from Graham. This is kind of on the lines of the first question we had, Ram, but in a slightly different vein, so we'll, we'll do it because it's interesting. Um, I just got Andrew, the weekly podcasts are great. Thank you, mate. And there's always lots to learn. I've been listening for a couple of years. Thank you. I'd like to ask you both a question about earnings season. The results of companies become quite confusing for investors. When companies announce their underlying earnings, pro forma earnings, statutory earnings, how do you guys pull these results apart? And this is what I thought was interesting. Compare results from year to year. Do you pay more attention to operating cash flow rather than net profit? Keep up the great work. Cheers, Graham. So, mate, we've, we've talked about, you know, things about uh, adjusted earnings and that kind of stff. But what I liked about Graham's was the mention of year, year on year, which is really important. And also, how do we kind of roll cash flow into that conversation? Mm. Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because statutory profit and, and, op, and cash flow can, can sometimes diverge significantly. Um, I'm going to frustrate everyone by saying it depends again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, th- I think, again, I, I, I come back to this idea of owner earnings, um, however sensibly you want to sort of define that. And, and that's, that's 
that's the that's the better metric to sort of look at. It'll be a combination of there'll be some years we're operating cash flow over states. It sounds mm-hmm. like it's the sensible mm-hmm. thing to do, but sometimes yeah. it might be a, that a, that a company was a bit late to bill on some of the work it won in the last financial period, booked a bunch when the new period rolled over, and then pulled forward mm-hmm. a bunch mm-hmm. of orders in the period that that may have otherwise gone into the next. So the operating cash flow looks fantastic, mm-hmm. but that's not a true representation of what the profitability, exactly. the, the long term profitability yeah. of the business is. So there's all yeah. these. This is the thing with with quite, and I understand, um, mm-hmm. you know. Graham's uh, frustration and confusion here because it is it is it is very difficult to do and there's no one easy answer to sort of say oh just look at operating cash flow or just look at this um, mm. it, it, it is every business even two businesses that operate in the same industry will be can potentially be quite different as well so you kind of unfortunately comes back to just trying to understand the business as best you can trying to mm. take a holistic view looking at all the different metrics and then from that distilling that down to something that you would consider as to be a reasonable proxy for for a one of a better term owner earnings yeah nice what yeah I, I this is these depends is relevant mate because it's it's kind of partly depends it's also kind of um it's circumstantial, right? And so it's understanding the right question to ask given the company, given the circumstances, mm. given what's going on. For a long time, I was all about profit. Then for a long time after that, I was all about cash flows. Mm. And then I kind of realized that neither is necessarily representative, right? Mm. It's, it's what they, it's how they work together in conjunction. I think that's important. Mm. But the cash flows, again, can be similar. If you're fixing the roof of the news agent I mentioned before, the cash flow is going to show you the same thing as profit, but neither is going to be as relevant as the future potential earnings of the yeah. business. So, um, or, or, you know, I, I guess I probably we won't have much more of the previous answer, Graham, other than to say cash flow is really important. That's what I wanted to talk about. Um, I wouldn't say rather than net profit. I would say with or in conjunction with net profit. Look at them both. See what they both tell you. If they tell you different things, that's a great way to start asking more questions. Mm. But I would never say one over the other arbitrarily because they just you know. Uh, they'd, they'd never show you the the whole story individually. That's why I love they're both there, right? Mm. We'd, we didn't throw out the P&L or replace it with the cash flow statement. We added the cash flow statement, which I've got to say, the, the accounts get a bad rap, but um, th- you know the, the, the requirements they've put in place for some of this stuff is really, really useful and a really good idea. Yeah, yeah. Question from Sam Ram. He says, uh, hi, Scott and Rampage. Firstly, as always, loving the podcast. Thanks, Sam. I'm a share advisor and Extreme Opportunities member. Thank you. And love getting new investment ideas coming through each month. The question is largely directed at Scott on dear, and your share advisor service. I'm wondering what level of detail you and your team go to with quantitative analysis of each company you recommend. The write-ups, while very informative, generally don't provide this level of detail other than perhaps trailing or projected earnings per share or trading multiples. Is your full analysis, such as perhaps your DCF run in the background, something you would have in the past or would consider in future sharing with members? Cheers, legends, from Sam. Mate, you, you've worked for the Motley Fool. You've been involved in the newsletter business. So I'll actually get your thoughts on this, not necessarily on behalf of the Fool, just in general, mm. um, as to whether you have any thoughts. Sam, here's, we, had member, we had a member who uh, cancelled their membership because we wouldn't give uh, five-year estimates of 20 or 25 different financial metrics. And I'm going to say to you, mate, this might disappoint you, and maybe you want to leave Share Advisor too, and if you do, that's completely okay. I hope you don't, but you might want to. Um, I haven't done a DCF in about 18 months at all for any company um, and it's for two reasons one is because I once you internalize the concept of the DCF you kind of don't necessarily need to do the numbers in the same way and the range of potential outcomes when you change things like the required rate of return or the discount rate you might hear it called and you change the terminal rate and again I'm getting algebraic but stick with me if you're not a DCF fan that's okay um, and you change the number of years you do this exercise over you can have anything say anything I can give you an $80 share price for Woolies and I can give you a $20 share price for Woolies with a couple of tweaks, right? If, if I increase my required rate of return, 
if I do a terminal rate that's lower, even, not even slightly lower, growth might be 2% rather than 3.5%, right? Terminal. Massive, massive, massive difference. Mm. Um, if I do it over five years versus 10 years, depending on what growth I expect in those second five years, again, massive difference. So DCFs are super, super, super useful to help you understand the moving parts of what a company might be worth. You talked about it earlier around the, or was it Friday? I can't remember. Um, the uh, the idea of time value of money, right? Mm. And, and discounted, dis, you know, the current, the, all, all future cash flows discounted. That's exactly what you should be thinking about as an investor. But I haven't done a DCF because honestly, when I when we recommended, I, I use Kogan because we've talked about it a million times, it's just easy one, rather give away other stuff. You know the other recommendations, Sam, but uh, I'll, I'll respect our members' money and and uh, and and uh, choice to be members. Um, when I do a, when I look at Kogan's business, the DCF's kind of irrelevant, right? Like if I'm right about Kogan, I think it's probably going to be worth something north of 20 and possibly somewhere north of 30 bucks. It's about 11 or $12 now. Now, if the DCF says $25.60 or $32.80 or $18.40, they're all larger than today's price. If I'm wrong fundamentally about the growth potential of the business, then even if I do five DCFs, they're all going to be wrong. And I'm not going to be helping anybody because the assumptions that go into it are going to be the problem, not what was in cell A16. So again, I really, really don't want to um, dissuade anyone from doing DCF. If you haven't done them, you should. They will help you a lot understand the way that pricing, the way that valuation, the way that discount rates matter. And you can start to conceptualize those things. I did it for years. I must have done them for mm. 10 years, maybe around, yeah, maybe too. 15 mm. years. Um, so, the, I, and, I, and I wouldn't be anywhere near the investor I am today, not that I'm anything special, but I wouldn't be anything like the investor I am today if I hadn't done them. So, mm. you should absolutely do them. To your, to your answer, though, Sam, as I said, I haven't done one for 18 months. Um, Depends what you're doing. If I'm if I'm buying Telstra or a pipeline company or a toll road, I really really want to do a DCF because the range of outcomes is really really small and the price you pay really really matters. If I'm doing a super high growth company, Newix you mentioned before, Ram. Um, again, think about Newix. Like what well, what DCF would have given you? Um, by the way, the, the the CEO leaves the business, the AFP raids the offices. Uh, that's not any of the DCFs, right? And again, not that you could have even known that either. But my point is, no matter how good your DCF was. Um, it's not relevant. A business like Atlassian, right? Or Amazon, I own shares in Amazon. Um, uh, you know, would you have done it? Would you have got it right? Probably not. But if you're roughly right, could you have known that Amazon might possibly be a really, really big business at some point in the future? Yeah. So honestly, we probably, I would say our analysis is, generally speaking, at ShareAdvisor, maybe two thirds qualitative, one third quantitative. And even there, it's kind of like, what does the business model look like? Are they growing? Is that you know, how much scale has that business got? How much leverage has that business got? What what proportion of the profit of the sales, sorry, fall to profit? All those kind of questions that are everything other than DCF or you know margins got went from thirty eight point two to thirty nine point three percent. That matters, by the way. Higher margins over time is great, mm. but I'm not going to say, well, okay, therefore I'm going to assume forty two point three percent margins, and then I'm going to assume the marketing costs go to nineteen point seven percent of sales from nineteen point nine percent of sales. You can do that, and it's really there's some great psychological research where um, you know, you, the, the more people, more information you give people, the more confident they are of the outcome. Mm. But they're rarely even more accurate as to the outcome. In other words, you give them one piece of information, they get they're roughly accurate. Give them three, they're pretty accurate. After that, for, I think it's after four pieces of information, their level of confidence went up massively, but their accuracy didn't change at all. So if you can find the two or three or four things that matter most, and sometimes DCFs absolutely matter. As I said, there are there are times absolutely, but if you can find things that matter most and get those right, adding detail for the sake of 
Uh, you know, so here's the thing, Sam. We could, we could give you five columns of, of detailed financials and you might feel so much more confident in us because we've done the work. Look, we've done the work. Um, and members would, right? Again, don't worry, not, not uh, giving you a hard time, Sam. Members, I'm sure, would, would feel much more confident if I said, here's our fully worked five-year you know, P&L plan for this business. Oh, great. Well, they've done so much work on this. They must be right. Uh, I don't know. The, 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 uh, the research says we're unlikely to be more accurate even though you had a higher level of confidence in us. Maybe as a business we should, right? Maybe we're stupid for not doing it for that reason. Um, but I think we, we would spend much more time on the qualitative factors and the things that we think based on experience actually move the dial for that particular business. Mm. Ren? I've definitely gotten more simplistic the, the more experience I've gotten, which sounds counterintuitive. No, but yeah, there's, totally there's a real right. elegance to yeah. that kind of stuff. At the yeah. end of the day, you've got to make some guesses on the future. So yeah. the, the fewer number of guesses I need to make, um, the better. <laughs> Um, right. And I've, I agree with you entirely. I, we actually gave a talk on valuation to our members just recently and I sort of mm-hmm. spoke to the virtues and the values of the DCF, but it is really, for my mm-hmm. mind, in, un, in helping to understand sort of mechanically the financials of the business. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really interesting. What are, what are variable versus <laughs> fixed costs? What mm-hmm. kind of margins are they running at? These kind, you know, how does this, if I adjust, you know, if they have to boost staff numbers up, how does this mm-hmm. sort of change things, et cetera, et cetera. It's sort of, just going through the exercise will be very, very illustrative. But then I, I'm not going to settle on a single number. It's, it's probably more valuable to do, you know, a variety of different ones and sort of mm-hmm. see where that scatter pattern looks like at the end. Is there some kind of, <laughs> you know? But, but yeah. I think, you know, even these days I tend to keep it, I'll, I'll, I think I'll focus on something like the sales, like the top line. And what are they going to grow mm-hmm. like? Mm-hmm. What's a reasonable margin for this business at maturity? So therefore, yeah. what does that translate? And then just go yeah, backwards yeah, yeah. from there. Now I'm still making some guesses, and I can still be mm-hmm. massively wrong. But I didn't, I didn't factor in an R and D budget. I didn't factor in, you know, <laughs> yeah, this and that and the, and the others. Yeah, yeah. You know, I yeah, just right, you, know, you, right. you can look at a lot of comparative uh, comparisons out there in businesses and say, oh, look, if I've got, mm. if I've got, I don't know, uh, a physical retailer out there, is it reasonable for me to assume a fifty percent net operating margin? Mm. On, you know, mm. pr- probably not. You know what I mean? It's just, yeah, it's just yeah. really nice and elegant. A few simple things to guess at, as I always mm-hmm. keep saying, generally right as opposed to specifically wrong. So, um, yep. yeah. Yeah, don't don't. I I wouldn't expect you guys to release your DCF or even even do them, but I would expect you, and I know you do, just to have thought about the business very carefully. And as you yeah. say, if you're yeah. generally right, it's going to work yeah. out well. And um, if 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 you've got it wrong fundamentally, then any DCF you spat out is not not worth it anyway. Garbage in, garbage out, as they say. Yep, totally. And look, and honestly, I would have no problem sharing the sheet. By the way, it's not it's not a case of us, you know, wanting to be proprietary about it. Um, I mean, maybe you know, we might might choose not to for, for competitive reasons or something. But I'd, I'd never really even thought about it. It's, it's not a case of not wanting to or being prepared to. It's just less relevant. I think you know, if we get the right things right, um, sometimes they're qualitative, sometimes they're quantitative. That that does the job right. The rest is kind of just noise and makes you feel better. I, I don't know if I'd get a job at an investment bank, by the way, or, or a stockbroker without having you know these these five columns of stuff because that's what we're assumed to need to produce. Mm. Um, the great thing about the Motley Fool is we don't, we don't we don't require people to do that. Mate, last question for today because we've uh, had, a, had a great chat and we've run out of time as we generally tend to do. <laughs> question from Jody. Hello, gentlemen. Great show and grateful for all the advice and education. I'm a current SA and EO member and was a DI member back in Andrew's day. <laughs> if an cool. investor used to run for us, mate. Thank you for that. Uh, I have three portfolios, one, uh, one in Australia, one in the US, and one in Canada. There you go, where I used to live. The Australian one, uh, blah, blah, let's talk about the details. Okay, here we go. Um, I have, uh, okay, the, the US and Canada portfolios, I actively manage as dividend growth portfolios. In other words, 
dividends focused, the dividends grow over time. I forecasted out my North America dividend income for the next 30 years. By taking this year's dividend payment, increasing it by the dividend increase this year, then repeating it every year for 30 years. I've assumed no change in share count, no dividend increase, and no dividend cuts. Just this year's increase used for each of the next 30. The result, my current 40 grand per annum of dividends becomes $231,000 in year 30. Here's the question. What have I done wrong? As this can't be true, can it? Hmm. And Jody finishes off a tidbit for Scott. Uh, <laughs> Canadian Investment Bank, oh, Canadian Bank, sorry, have launched a hedged Amazon Canadian depository receipt valued at 24 Canadian dollars. Full line, Jody. There we go. Hmm. Thank you, Jody. That's not always a nice tidbit. I own Amazon shares for the record. Um, it can absolutely be true, can't it, Ray? I'm trying to desperately do some maths in my head here. Um, <laughs> I've got a spreadsheet ready for you. Uh, do you? Well, yeah. uh, well let, before you give me the answer, <laughs> I, my, my first instinct, well, my first <laughs> thing is going to say, well, what? I, I don't know what the, the increase was in this last year. So that, yes, that, yeah. that's the question. If, if it was a yeah. really good year yeah. and you're extrapolating that forward for 30 years, that, that's, then that probably isn't true. Um, but if the increase that you're extrapolating is a pretty reasonable one, um, mm-hmm. then then it, it could be. And it could be that good because, well, when you take 30 years of compounding, that's that's what numbers yeah. do. They go from 40 yeah. to 230. So I'm not going to be surprised if you tell me that actually <laughs> you only need X percent growth to, to God, get there. God, just, just, just for sheer fun because people have lasted this long for the podcast, have a guess at what the percentage increase would need to be to make 40 grand worth $230,000 in 30 years. It's probably only like ten percent or something, is it? Or it's less than that? A, a six? Yeah, six. Bang six on. percent. Well okay, yeah. Second right. guess. Well done, mate. That's impressive. Good job. Um, yeah, it's six percent. And even and, I got, uh, got it massively yeah. wrong on the first guess. There, right? The big difference yeah. between ten and six oh, percent. The the key point here, though, is Jody that it's absolutely possible um, because, as Andrew said, that's what compounding does. That's what numbers actually do. A small amount of <laughs> a small increase repeated over and over and over and over again becomes exponential pretty quickly. In fact. The gain in the last year, that, that 30th year, is actually a $13,000 increase. Mm. So you're seeing that, you know, you started with 40, the increase alone mm. is, is a third of that in, yeah. in the last year because of the way compounding works. Yep. So Jody, you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. This is exactly it. Now, as Ram says, is this year's dividend sustainable? Don't know. Is the rate of growth sustainable? I don't know. 6% is not a lot to expect a dividend to grow by, mate, if their productive businesses actually earning more every year, yeah. profit-wise. Yeah, that, I. Six percent strikes me as as towards the optimistic side of things. Okay. I mean, it, it depends on the basket of, of businesses that we're that we're talking yeah, yeah. about here. But generally speaking, if you've got a business that's paying a dividend, it, as, as a general rule, they tend to be more mature businesses. Yeah, that's um, uh, no exceptions to that. I know there's lots of exceptions to that, but but um, mm, but mm. here's the here's the other thing, right? Even if you just sort of say, well, maybe that was, maybe I'll pull it back to four percent or something like that. You're mm. still going to have a very high number, right? Yeah, correct. 4% is $130,000. There you no, go. Not bad. Mm-hmm. Not bad. Um, so, Jody, yeah, look, that, that's uh, Rams actually, I was, you've pretty much taken every point I was going to make, mate. So, yes, um, it is true. You can do it. You've got to make sure the 40 is sustainable. The 6% is sustainable and regular. Um, go back four or five years and average that at the very least mm-hmm. and find out whether those companies have increased it at that rate. You're probably going to own the same companies either for that 30-year period. So, you'll have to think about taxes if you do sell. But also remembering that, as Andrew says, that even, even those businesses that aren't quite mature yet will mature at some point over the next 30 years. Mm. So, you know, uh, maybe, uh, yeah, look, if you've got an extraordinary quality group of companies that happen to grow at that rate and that's sustainable, then cool. I would probably look at, and because you're doing it across different markets, choose the market you're in and look at the total markets dividend increase on average over, over a period of time and see mm. what that is. Mm. Um, take out COVID, um, 
go back to 2019, look at the previous five years, for example, and just say, okay, well, the average Australian company increases dividend by 4.5% over that five years or 7.5% or whatever the number is. Um, that's probably a more reasonable starting point. But you're exactly, dividend growth, that's the idea, right? You're looking for dividend growth, you're getting it. And if you get it, that sort of compounding can make a lot of money. Remember, of course, that's in real dollars. So if inflation is 2%, They'll take some of that out of there, so you're not getting sort of all free money. You're gonna have to pay uh, pay more for bread and milk and cars by then. But it's, look, that's that's the power of compounding. As Andrew started by saying, this is this is why we do it. This is what compounding does. By the way, you're, you're going to get six percent dividend growth if you can get your total return for your total portfolio to ten percent. Forty thousand dollars today is actually six hundred ninety-eight thousand dollars. In 2051. Now you're taking money out, right? So that assuming you're taking it out and you're spending it, you're not going to get the full amount. But if you aren't working yet, for example, or maybe you are, um, if you're reinvesting that instead, and you get the market's average return of 10% or so, then that what's that? 15, 17 times your money hmm. in 30 years at only 10%. Now maybe it's less, maybe it's more. But that this is why we keep banging on about compounding, about adding regularly, about ignoring the market noise. Great way to finish round because it's a, just a, a stonking reminder of the value of keeping your head down. Add regularly if you can, let your money compound. Don't sweat the small stuff and just make sure you stay invested and, and let, uh, let time do its thing. The only disappointing thing in it is that it's 30 years. <laughs> like, <laughs> but unfortunately, you, that long? you know, getting rich slow is like the easiest thing in the world. Um, I, wish there was a way that, to, yeah. I wish there was a way to do it quickly, but yeah. <laughs> that's, that, and that's the rub. That's the rub, yes, right? Yes. That's why people take risks mm-hmm. because, it, you know, it's not... Not really that unreasonable. Well, not what's the word for it? It's not. I, it's very understandable. People go, "Oh, yeah, that's great." Yeah, so you know, yeah. I have to wait thirty years, and then it'll be a, then 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 I'll then I'll be really well off. And it's like, yes, but yeah. unfortunately, yeah. there are no shortcuts, and any shortcuts are not repeatable. Uh, you know, they're, they're they're a consequence of luck. So, Correct. yes, it is very attractive, but unfortunately, you do have to wait a long time. But it is it is it is a, a seed worth planting and a wait worth waiting. There you go. Beautifully done. That's it, mate. We're done. If you do want to have your question answered next week, next Sunday, make sure you hit us up on all the usual socials. Let me do them very quickly and then we'll get out of here. Uh, on Twitter, grab Andrew at Sage underscore Simeon or at Strawman Invest. No, yes, Strawman Invest. Let me do that again. At Sage underscore Simeon or at Strawman Invest. Um, jump onto our Twitter stuff at TMF Scott P and at The Motley Fool AU. It is exactly the same on Instagram. On Facebook, The Motley Fool Australia or Scott Phillips Money or send us an email, info at fool.com.au. Please do subscribe to this podcast, like it, give us some stars, leave us a review if you wouldn't mind and also make sure you check out The Good Oil with Scott Phillips in only two days' time. You will hear the latest episode drop on your podcast feed, so subscribe now, please, because I want you to hear it. It's great, but also, you know, I have an ego and I like to think that people actually will want to hear my podcast so that Southern Cross Area don't cancel it on me. So that would be also not that well. I was going to say they're likely to. Maybe they are. Maybe they're planning it right now. So help me out here. Um, jump onto the good oil with Scott Phillips. Google that. Or look it up on your podcast machine. Hit subscribe, and you'll get the next episode when it drops on Tuesday. Until then, and until we meet you next Friday, full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691. Listener.